I can't. I can't. Okay, hi. 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 <laughs> Hi, I'm Rachel Handler, and welcome to Lady Problems, where every Thursday, me and a rotating crew of ladies look at the way that pop culture is treating women. Guess what? It's almost always terribly. This week, my co-host is Hazel Sills. Hi, Hazel. Hi. Hazel and I are so excited about our guest this week. It's Karin Kusama. Karin is the director of Jennifer's Body, Girl Fight, and last year's The Invitation. Hazel and I are both huge horror fans and huge fans of Karin. Hi, Karin. Thanks for joining us. Hi. We're going to talk to Karen about her new short film, which is part of a female horror anthology called XX. Then we'll get into the strange and singular trajectory of her career thus far, how she's gone from indie films to studio films and back, and about the state of modern horror. So Karen, tell us about XX. XX is a horror film anthology, somewhat similar to other releases like VHS or Southbound, but what distinguishes XX is the four films are directed by women and often written by women and all have female protagonists. So can you explain a little bit about what your segment specifically is about in the film? Sure. Um, My segment is called Her Only Living Son, and it's meant to be a kind of speculative reimagining of another outcome of uh, one of my favorite films, Rosemary's Baby. And, it, and it's really meant to just imagine a different ending to what has now become, I think, a very classic story of uh, demon possession and, and imagines that the maternal instinct and the maternal influence is actually more powerful potentially than or as powerful as this sort of more supernatural demonic force. And it's it's just toying with ideas around parenthood and around having having a son who you love and fear and um, who you've raised on your own. I think um, for me, thinking about just sort of the loneliness of motherhood uh, really is what kind of drove the story for me. That's so funny because we both watched the movie and Hazel was like, I think it's supposed to be Rosemary's Baby, <laughs> but I'm not sure. But we both love that movie. Yeah. I mean, it's it's meant to – there's a scene in Rosemary's Baby that I, I, I think about so much where where um, Mia Farrow goes to see her old doctor, played by Charles Grodin, and she, she, she sort of tumbles out with her story of what happened to her and he appears to believe her and appears to say, I'm going to get you help, but then – ultimately must think she's insane and just returns her to her captors. And I always imagined, I always watch that scene with a lot of interest because because I just wonder on a narrative level what kind of stories come out of of benevolence and faith as opposed to mistrust and that sort of paternalistic sense of knowing better than than the female character. And so I always just wondered what would happen if that doctor believed her story. And um, that's sort of what gave me the idea for an 18 years later imagining of, of those kinds of characters. I'm curious too, because almost all of the movies or all of the shorts, except for one, deal with these domestic 
horror ideas, you know, women related to sort of women's traditional roles, for for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. Um, Was that something that you guys were directed to deal with? Was it just a coincidence? You know, it's purely coincidence because um, we actually didn't have access to each other's projects. And I think that was kind of... um, just to allow us a sense of freedom to come up with the stuff that interested us the most. And inevitably there was some crossover in, in, in the themes of certain films, I think, because I do think there's a preoccupation that women understandably have with this idea of the roles we're meant to play and whether or not those roles serve us or ultimately kind of imprison us. It's so interesting that you guys came up with the ideas separately because they are, you know, of the same of the same sort of concept. And I'm curious if that's like, is it just because being a woman is just like so fucked up and scary? Well, <laughs> it's like hard to make a horror movie without I dealing mean, I, with I, that. Yeah, I, I mean, I it's interesting because there's a there's a, been a a resurgence of this question about one women who go to f- horror films and two women who make horror films and are are big uh, sort of fans of the genre. And I think it's so interesting that we have to kind of keep retreading this question or these issues because to me, it's pretty clear that women's lives are just often frightening, often uh, loaded with threat all the time. Mm-hmm. And so in, in a way... I feel like we're kind of ideal candidates to be unearthing stories about fear, about human vulnerability, about fighting back, about about terror. And for me, I I I I, I feel like I don't see myself as um, all that different from other humans as a woman, but I'm surprised by how frequently. I'm asked to see myself differently. And so that's one kind of terror to have to face. Like sort of, am I a unicorn? Am I, what makes, do you know, what what's sticking out of my head that I'm not seeing? I'm simply female and and that puts me alongside all of my human counterparts. But but I think what what I'm starting to really grapple with as someone who likes to tell stories is that humans, more than any other animal species, uh, seem open to and willing to control, assert dominance, uh, behave cruelly. And that's a whole kind of new nightmare to really have to face about your own species, that we are in some respects cannibalistic in that we are willing to destroy ourselves. And so that's really something for me to to be like um exploring uh over the long haul <laughs> totally mm-hmm. and it's funny too because like in in the three segments including yours there's something about like motherhood being terrifying mhm mhm like ch- the ch- children themselves being terrifying <laughs> well and you know that's an interesting it's funny because i i ultimately am kind of resistant to the storylines about terrifying children like i feel like there's something very reactionary <laughs> mm-hmm. And kind of conservative about this idea of like demon children, even though I've just made a movie that's sort of <laughs> riffing on that. I have a kind of cinema studies critical capacity to say that that's kind of coming out of, I think, a sort of pre-Reagan era fear of mm-hmm. young young creativity, young sexuality, all of those kinds of things. 
But that being said, what we don't really want to talk about openly is motherhood as this sort of curtain lifting of tremendous power that we have individually as women. It's tremendously freaky to have a human being grow inside your body and eventually turn into a human being and then birth a human being and then have them be separate from you. And those things are really scary. It's also really, really scary to face the idea of losing a child and losing someone you love more than you've loved every, anything before so so or anyone before so the, all of those things I think are innately really terrifying and what it really does to me is bring me to like in direct kind of confrontation with my human vulnerability and I just think that's where all of the really great horror stories end up coming from is having to face one's frailty, one's flaws. And um, I think the best horror manages to sort of poke into that, you know, soft belly. Yeah, I'm reminded of The Babadook, which Mm -hmm. was obviously a movie in which the mother character wasn't a textbook, you know, savior, that Mm -hmm. she actually became the demonic force in that movie. Yes. And and her child had to save her. Absolutely. And, and, And I think we forget that part of parenthood means having to sort of face and reject or face and embrace a kind of animal capacity for unkindness. And, and if, when parents do embrace that, it reveals something very ugly to oneself. And so, you know, I think that was something that I've, now that I've got a child and he's almost 10 years old, I think a lot about what the effects of reckless or thoughtless parenting is. And those effects can be really scary. What outside of this, what, what scares you? Like wh- whether it's movie, whether it's, you know, sort of an existential fear. I mean, oh my God, it's like existential, <laughs> existential fears. It, 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 it's just like, how do I even start? <laughs> you can but, make one. <laughs> you know what I'll say, you know, because I've been asked a question that's similar to this and, and I've really had to kind of um, narrow down, <laughs> narrow down the like um, house of horrors or, you know, whatever the, 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 the closet of, of frights and say that What's really been troubling me and deeply, deeply, deeply disturbing me and making me pretty pretty on edge is what I would say is a kind of cultural acceptance of a lack of curiosity. And to me, the thing that sets us apart from so many other animal species is our ability to ask questions, investigate, gather information, come to our own, con- our own conclusions, and sometimes depart from the pack, sometimes move away from the tribe. And I'm not seeing a lot of that right now among a, a, a sizable portion of American politics and, and um, American voters. I, I'm, I'm not seeing a kind of use of critical thinking. And it really, really freaks me out because that complacency and that willingness to give yourself over to a larger power structure is how civilizations destroy themselves. And I just hope people wake up from the the slumber they've willed themselves to because, you know, we're, <laughs> we're really in a dark place right now. 
Yeah, we really are. I was actually thinking about this the other night because I went to watch this movie, and I love horror movies, but I was like, oh, my God, I don't even want to watch horror right now because mm-hmm. I'm so frightened in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, that's the other thing. It's sort of like, does it answer the call right now to see stuff that makes you viscerally terrified or or not? I mean, I I tend to feel like – I mean, it's funny, like a movie – that I needed to see after the election was arrival. I felt so mm-hmm. thankful for that movie and 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 thankful that it asked questions and that it imagined a really smart, curious, brilliant woman basically saving humanity. Um, we need those kind of stories right now because because I, I think actually those narratives are gonna be the narratives that um, get reflected back into our daily lives. I think maybe now's a good time to start talking, sort of making the conversation a little bigger, talking about your general career. First, I'd love to talk about Girl Fight. This is something that, I mean, I know that's where you began, and that was a huge critical success for you, but it wasn't uh, super widely distributed. I know you had some issues getting the movie off the ground because it starred a woman of color, and you had some pushback about that, right? Yes. Oh, yes. Um, I mean, I think that's why it took... I think it took a long time to get made simply because I had insisted that the character be Latina and insisted that we believe she is 18 or 19 years old, which eliminated, you know, perhaps the only star at the time we could have considered, which would have been J-Lo. I just, I really needed to, to, to feel like we, we were giving the audience a chance to see a, a completely new character. And that really took, um, took a lot of time to get the support to make that movie. Yeah. And with Aeon Flux, I know you've spoken about this at length before, but you sort of, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, at some point in the process, you kind of lost control of, yeah, of I mean, the editing process. Yeah. The editing, the, there was a separate editing process that went on kind of outside of, of my purview. And, um, the studio brought that version of the film to me, um, having decided they didn't like my version. They they had another version made. They brought that version to me, which was essentially like a you know seventy two minute disaster. And they said, you know, <laughs> this movie doesn't work. We don't think your movie works either. But can you restore to this version the things about your movie that do, that your your version that does work. And so that's <laughs> that's what I mean when I say it's kind of a mutation of sensibilities because ultimately wow. it isn't my film. I, I hoped to make it just more narratively coherent and a little bit less egregiously incompetent, but I ultimately <laughs> I ultimately lost that that battle, you know. Um, yeah. I don't, you know, the film was was uh, treated with very little faith from the studio that made it, and was subsequently, you know, not not well reviewed or particularly appreciated at the time. I mean, I, you know, that's one of those those experiences though that coming back from really taught me a lot. It, it, it showed me so much about how difficult it is to make movies in the studio system past a certain budget level, but really at any budget level, when you're one, working with a committee, and two, you remain a somewhat unknown entity, and three, you're female. I just think there was an added level of oversight 
applied to my process because there was so much fear of um, what I was going to do or what was going to happen or what the movie was going to be. And so the go-to reaction was not to lend support and be useful and helpful as a resource. It was just to um, punish. I, you know, I learned a lot from that kind of experience. It, 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 it showed me a lot about sort of the internal personal politics of studio filmmaking. You had this huge Sundance hit, and then you had two movies in major studios that just the final products were, were basically not yours, or the marketing was botched. Uh, you had a lot of problems with them. After Jennifer's Body, what was sort of your relationship with the major studio system? Did you still want to be in it? Were you no. being pushed out of it? I didn't. You know, it's it's funny. I think there there's a rare kind of cream of the crop of directors who I think are courted by every studio. But ultimately, that system is pretty dog-eat-dog. I mean, I, I don't know if I was actively pushed out. I just um, had had two complicated experiences in the studio world and wasn't eager to, um, I just wasn't eager to subject myself to it again. And so I really, really kind of knuckled down into developing all of the indie projects that I had on the back burner and worked for several years to get a bunch of different independent projects off the ground and finally could find, you know, a, a little bit of money to make the invitation. But, you know, I, after those experiences, it felt really important to me that I make a film that was creatively, truly, um, just truly mine. So that if you love it or you hate it, you, 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 you love or you hate it on my terms. And that was the thing that was missing, um, from certainly from Eon Flux, because the film doesn't resemble what I wanted to make nearly at all. And then in terms of how Jennifer's body was framed to the public, that wasn't a, a, a process I was in control of. So in some ways, the invitation, though it was a really super low budget film for me to return to kind of making films in that system, it was, it was a way to, um, to just sort of be reminded of my own kind of creative muscles, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the the invitation was a fantastic movie. Me and Rachel, oh my god, really loved it. So good. Um, <laughs> and maybe you could talk a little bit about how the idea for that movie first started. And it did you always know that it was going to be more of an indie production, or or was it something that you had originally envisioned as being more of a major studio film? Oh no, I never saw it as a studio film. In in many, it it. it it always had to be an indie. It was just a question of what scale. Um, I would have loved to have made it with a little bit more money and had a little bit more time and a little bit more money to give to my collaborators um, who kindly basically almost worked for free on it. Um, all of that was really kind of quite difficult for me. Um, I'm I'm a grown-up at this point, and so to have to be asking other grown-ups to be working for free um, – it felt weird and kind of um, unpleasant to have to to put people in that position. Um, mm-hmm. But it was it was valuable for me to make a film, you know, in or in, in in even less time than I made Girl Fight um, for nearly the same amount of money, maybe even a little bit less. Um, that felt really positive for me because it reminded me that I still kind of have 
the innate skills. In fact, I have more of them than I did when I first made my first film. And so a lot of the stuff that I think, a lot of the experience, whether it was good or bad for me personally, translated into a pretty fruitful, creative time for me while I was making the invitation because I just, I, I'm just, I'm a more experienced filmmaker. <laughs> so, so it was a, I was mm -hmm. able to sort of enjoy that and, um, come from a real place of decisiveness and confidence. And so, um, I, I knew the film to get back to your original question. It's like, I knew the film needed to be low budget. I just didn't know how low budget. And that was kind of a comeback for you. I think like I, I, as you were, as you've been describing, like between um, Jennifer's body and this, there's like there's it's just it's night and day. I think in terms of the movies as well, and and the way that they've been received. And now, you you had an interview with BuzzFeed earlier this year where you said that you've since started receiving more scripts, but that a lot of them have like just innate violence against women, or women are beaten to death, or they're murdered for sport. I mean, are you are you still seeing that? Are you still getting scripts like that? Oh yeah. I mean, I, I it. I'm realizing it's not personal. I mean, if anything, I'm getting the <laughs> the edited version of all of, you know, what's out there. I, I think it's a really, really common trope to the degree that now beyond how morally or ethically offensive one might find it, it it's just such a cliche. There's just so much lazy violence directed at women. But beyond that, lazy direct violence directed at humans generally, just lazy violence. You know, like that's what I'm really finding to be kind of um, an ongoing theme. And the thing is, is I'm, to complicate matters, I'm really interested in violence. And I think that there's an inevitably cinematic property that violence brings to the movie going experience, but it ha it, it, one still has to be thoughtful and mature about how you depict it and how you think it through. You have to think it through. You have to think about the effects that violence have on audiences. And, and, um, it's just deployed so casually that I think, um, it's losing its meaning. And, and when things like, you know, violence and murder and the dehumanization of, of other people lose their meaning, then, you know, we're, we're, we're really kind of um, in a place where we have to re-examine. We're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. We just need yeah. to take a hard look at ourselves. <laughs> yeah. horror movies in general have gotten less violent? I'm thinking about torture porn sort of being dead at the moment. That's interesting. I mean, it does seem like there's not as much of an appetite for those films out there. Um, I think there was this period, and I remember it while I was making Jennifer's Body, where people would use the word both at the studio level and then kind of at the test screening level, they would use the word kills. Like, I, I don't know, I just thought there'd be more creative kills and stuff like that. And, <laughs> and, it, and I, I just had never confronted the, the kind of nakedness with which um, audiences at the moment had seemed to kind of crave just the destruction of the human body like that. And now I think it's either getting old for people um, and, and they're bored or it's losing its power and, um, 
and you can't escape into it anymore. And, and maybe that's a good thing. I mean, maybe that, maybe that's showing some progress in, you know, that, that, that the pendulum has swung back to what I think is a lot of successful horror that's actually quite thoughtful and thought provoking. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty hard right now, at, at least just looking at major mainstream horror films, uh, to sort of elevate and give a platform to original storytelling. Like there are a lot of horror reboots right now, um, even on TV, things like uh, Bates Motel or Hannibal. And basically it seems like studios and maybe also audience goers uh, really want to see horror movies that they are familiar with in some way. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just curious if like, if you think that the only place for original storytelling right now is in indie cinema, like if someone wants to make a horror movie, you know, with an original story, they they're just going to have to make it themselves. I think um, that's a really interesting kind of question and provocative because it 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 almost demands that you look beyond horror and ask yourself that question about pretty much almost anything in culture. Um, because, yeah. <laughs> I, because I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about sort of how new ideas get introduced to mainstream culture anymore, um, without some kind of independent kernel that allows it to sort of exist as itself first, because, because that's the first hurdle is getting to a place where there's actually a pure expression and it just doesn't feel like something retrofitted or engineered to sort of hit a certain quadrant of the marketplace. And all of a sudden people are thinking like mathematicians instead of artists. And so I do think overall there's more opportunity in, in the, the space of ideas, um, in, in independent realms. But I think a lot of really interesting independent ideas have been introduced recently in some bigger studio fair. And so it's an interesting question because sometimes what you need are resources to, to best realize and most fully realize the originality of your idea. For instance, Arrival is a great example. Yes, that was adapted from a short story, but it was brilliantly adapted from a story that no one thought could be adapted from. So that, you know, I think there's, um, that takes a kind of intellectual currency that we don't often see at the studio level um, or, uh, or of films of, at that size. So I'm hesitant to say the only place for good ideas and new ideas is the independent space, but I think time and time again, some of the most interesting stuff comes out of that space for sure. Mm -hmm. It's also some of the most interesting stuff directed by women. Uh, you know, I'm thinking again, we mentioned The Babadook, but also movies like Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. And I'm those were movies that were maybe super critically successful, but not necessarily commercially successful, as in they, they didn't have, you know, super mainstream wide releases. I mean, do you think for... It just doesn't – I'm just interested in why there are so many great horror movies by women that exist in these independent spaces and then why aren't they making the jump to mainstream circles? Why aren't they making – why aren't these directors, you know, getting to direct big budget horror projects? Well, I mean that's such a uh, – it's a great question, a really valid question. Um, 
it's so complicated. I, I, on the one hand, I, I, I can say for myself, I'm seeing more and more interesting horror come my way at the studio level, more and more interesting thrillers, genre films generally are coming my way from the studio level and they're financed and they have movie stars attached and all of that. But a lot of times the storytelling just doesn't speak to me. It, it feels like it's still oftentimes coming out of a kind of prescribed notion of normalcy, prescribed notion of, of gender roles. Um, there's not a lot new seeming to, to be happening. And so I'm not drawn to many of those projects and not willing to say yes to many of them. Um, I don't know if that means my female colleagues are having the same experience or those projects aren't necessarily always getting in front of them um, or they feel similar strains of kind of just like, oh, I just wish this was more interesting. Um, that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that women still routinely get passed over when when everyone sits around a table and says, okay, what's our list of 10, 20, 30 directors that we want to put at the top of our list for this project? Um, you know, you need more people who are either women who care about this issue or men who care about this issue who are sitting in the room and saying, guys, where are the women? We need, we need to be going out to women. And, and, and particularly in the projects that really, um, could use a fresh feminine perspective, whatever that ultimately means. Um, I'm surprised how frequently um, that level of oversight and that that sort of self-critical process within the committees that sort of make these lists doesn't happen. So, you know, you just need more like people at the top who make it a priority to hire women. And I just don't know yet I, I don't think there are enough people yet who have that track record. I mean, with the exception of people like Oprah and Ava DuVernay, like I don't think mm -hmm. yet we're at the place where um, enough women at the top are hiring other women to make a difference. Oprah needs to subsidize more horror films Yeah, is what the solution <laughs> is here. <laughs> I also feel like the narrative uh, usually is, you know, when women aren't making super mainstream major studio films, it's because they were passed over. But I think if you look at a career like your career, the the other outcome of that is, well, maybe women don't want to direct movies on that level. And I feel like that's something people don't talk about enough. Well, I think what happens is men talk about it and then it sounds like they're just making decisions for, for women and yeah. not yeah. examining their own choices and opportunities very carefully. Um, you know, I think um, I, I don't want to make studio films if I am constantly fighting to assert some kind of leadership within the, the, the process. You know, I'm not hired to be um, – a, a, a really nice person who comes up with some solutions to problems now and then I'm hired to be the director. And, mm -hmm. and so it's frustrating to me that my, my two experiences within the studio system ultimately 
one more than the other, somewhat systematically um, attempted to kind of remind me of my powerlessness. <laughs> and in the end, I don't really want to welcome that kind of experience into my life again. And so I do think it's possible for me to go back to the studio and for a lot of women filmmakers to be going back into studio filmmaking with a different sense of their own agency and a different sense of, you know, um, the, the respect that they can command. But I just, um, I'm definitely, you know, when you ask the question about do women want to be making big studio movies, the answer is, I would say almost always Yes. It's just how do they want to be treated? What is that experience going to be? And if you know the experience yeah. is going to be shitty going into it, I personally am at a place where I'm not looking to punish myself any longer. Right. Yeah. If you could like repopulate the current sort of uh, masthead of men making horror movies with your female contemporaries, who would you put up there? Ooh. Well, I do think Jennifer Kent is super, super, super interesting. Um, and I haven't um, gotten to see that movie Raw yet, the French film. Just I've heard it's just like just an amazing cinematic statement and I'm really excited by that. I, I It's funny because I don't really, though I have my own interests in horror, I don't actually like pay obsessive attention to the horror genre. Like so I, I probably don't know many male filmmakers either. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I, I think Anna, Anna Lily Amirpour, Amirpour is really super interesting. Um, mm -hmm. And she just sort of obviously is interested in genre, which is, which is cool. But I feel kind of like what could be interesting is to see more female filmmakers approaching horror the way, say, Jonathan Demme decided to tackle Silence of the Lambs, you know, you wouldn't have looked at his resume and said, oh, that's a no-brainer. But it mm -hmm. went on to be a hugely successful direction for him to take. And so I feel like they're, that more women filmmakers need the opportunity to flex in all sorts of ways and then get the opportunity to tackle different genres because that that's, I think that, that, I mean, personally, I'm not looking to be kind of a specialist of a certain kind of film as much as just make films that seem like they speak from my distinct and specific voice. And so I'm hoping more women, you know, get to just make, make their films. I hope Jillian Robespierre gets to make a horror movie because I'm sure there's plenty she's got a lot to say about, you know what I mean? Um, oh man, that would be awesome. Yeah. yeah so it's just kind of like a question of just what scares us at the moment and are we willing to kind of like be sleepless for a few years of our life? <laughs> <laughs> I want a Nancy Myers horror film. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, I've always said that what lies beneath is the closest thing we have to a Nancy Myers oh horror God, movie. Right. That is because really she's like true. Her, That's really true. She's it's like sending an amazing her daughter kitchen. off to college. Yeah. <laughs> yes. She always looks perfect. <laughs> Not a spatula. It's like out a of lifestyle place. horror film. <laughs> Lots of white cashmere <laughs> curtains. <Yes>. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> 
Karin Kusama, thank you so much for joining us. Um, please tell our listeners how they can see XX. Um, XX is opening in theaters, selected theaters, and on the small screen on February 17th. And uh, I hope everybody's going to check it out. Hazel, always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm Rachel Handler, and thank you so much for listening to Lady Problems. And we want to listen to you. So follow us on Twitter at Lady Problems Pod, where you can ask us about a lady problem you're having or leave us a message on the Lady Problems hotline at 205-677-5239. That's 205-677-LADY. See you next week. This episode of Lady Problems was produced by Michael Catano. James T. Green, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network, with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. <laughs>